Okay, everybody. Uh, you have tuned in to the Tough Like a Girl podcast. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Liz. And I don't know how this is going to sound or come out because we are doing this not together. We are socially isolated from each other and have been for a while now. Yes. (laughs) We're a little frustrated about that, but I'm sure everyone else is too. Yes. Yeah. No, that's not, that's not a unique perspective. So we won't dwell on that. We are going to do the book that we have been planning to do already for this month. And that is Frey written by Joss Whedon. Um, you have the book in front of you at your location. Yes, I do. I am ready. Could you read me the artist credits on that? Yes. Um, the penciler is Carl Moline. Um, the inker is Andy Owens. The colorists are Dave Stewart and Michelle Madsen. And the letterer is Michelle Madsen. This was Joss Whedon's first time ever writing a comic book. And... As one might expect, since he became famous on the back of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, this is set in the Buffyverse, except it's the future and it's sci-fi. So it, which I think was an interesting approach. Buffy would, of course, later get a direct continuation in comic book form. But I find it interesting that his initial leap into the medium was to deal in the world that he knew, but a version of it that had definitely not been done prior to that. And also one that he probably couldn't do on TV because the budget required to do oh this, my gosh, yeah. you know, this, this sci-fi world was way beyond anything he would have had access to. Yeah. So what? Oh, it's 23rd century is when is where this is set. And our main character is Malaka Frey. Hmm who is unbeknownst to herself for uh for the opening chunk she is the latest iteration of the slayer mm-hmm. and if you know your buffy then you know you know what to expect well there's a slayer there's going to be watchers there's going to well yeah sort of uh not quite so turns out the watchers are around but like not helpful and kind of crazy Mm-hmm. And instead, she finds herself being sort of tutored by a demon. Yes. Basically. With really cool, like, goat horns and, like... Yeah, like like, a, re- like real proper demon-looking sucker. Like a bug uh, face kind of going on. Yeah. Flower. And uh, he helps train her to be able to take on vampires because yes, of course, vampires are still around and need to be dealt with. And there's one that she has a history with that killed her brother. And there's some other stuff that we'll deal a little bit further in with when we start talking plot specifics. Mm -hmm. Um, But general thoughts. I liked it. Um, I what really sold me were two of the twists in it. One that came about halfway through, and one at the end. Um, I I actually really liked it. I liked her. She was less self righteous than Buffy. Um, oh yeah, like life sucks, and she knows it sucks, and she does not think too much of her place in it. Yeah, she does not pretend like you know she's she's the best ever like she has the answers she's just trying to get by and 
if getting by means like stealing things or being a grabber, as they call it, being a thief, that burglar, then she's all for it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I did like her. I liked her attitude. I like her crashing into things and being like, ouch. <laughs> <You know>? like, <laughs> um, so I enjoyed it. It was a little anticlimactic at the end. It does feel like it's it's setting up an ongoing series, but the ongoing series never happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, it kind it kind of has a it has a climax, but then it has like a non wrap up. Yeah, I like some of the secondary characters. I like the family dynamics in it, which we'll get into. Um, and um, I liked Lou. Um, she she had a soft spot in my heart because she was super scrappy. Yeah, um, so that that's this local uh, girl who lo- really looks up to to Mel. Uh huh. Um, I like the world they're playing in. Um, it makes sense that vampires have kind of devolved, and especially given what happens, you know, at the end of Buffy and everything. So, yeah. Um, and. So something that's interesting timeline-wise, this came out. Buffy hadn't finished when this hit the shelves. Yes, I don't First know if hit it, the shelves. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if this came out. I think it was while season seven was airing. Yes. Yeah, so some of the issues did, and they think actually I was reading something that said that that's why they think it kind of like the last two issues feel a little like anticlimactic and rushed is he was working on the last season of Buffy and probably concentrating on that more. Possibly. The weapon in it makes a... It makes its debut here. It appeared here before it did on Buffy. So for Buffy fans who haven't read this, this this is the red uh, scythe axe with the... With the stake at at the at the end of it, Th- that weapon originally appeared here before yeah. showing up on the show, which I think was a very cool Easter eggy kind oh, of thing yeah. to do. Yeah. Yep. Um. So that was cool. Um. So yeah. I mean, she's definitely in the line of like Whedon um, heroines. Heroines. <laughs> You know, in that I, I, I feel I feel like you're gonna need to elaborate, so go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, and he even says this. He's like, you know, when I was writing this in his little forward, he's like, I wanted a girl like, you know, that was slight in frame and you know, tough but sexy, which is very much <laughs> weed into a T is like he likes his nubile girls and he likes them girls oftentimes that are not like that you never really had a showcase of older women on his show and they're usually white and <laughs> they're, they're girls who don't like look like they can kick your ass but they can kick although Frey does look like she could probably kick your ass she has some a arm little muscles than, a little bit more than Buffy she always has to have her midriff shown and there was one time where it was like the the line was like my hand doesn't shake and I was like, yes, your hand's showing, but it's also a butt shot <laughs> in tight pants. And I'm like, it, well, I guess the, your butt's not shaking either. <laughs> like, there's no shimmying going on. <laughs> okay, so the, the man clearly has a type. Although, and this is not necessarily a defense, but I will say that by the standards of superhero-esque comic books, 
this is pretty restrained. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's not the worst we've seen. Um, there not, are several not by a long shot. No. Um, and it's not very booberific because, again, she it is more focused on like the midriff and things like that. But um, she is in the vein of Whedon um, girls, and I will say girls because that's kind of what he. he, he yeah, he doesn't really deal with women, and the few times he has, they've often either been supporting characters or somehow infantilized. So, yeah, no, mm-hmm. that's uh, that's fair. Yeah, so that'll be my criticism for Whedon for now. Um. <laughs> I, I'm knowing some of your thoughts about him. I am impressed at your restraint. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So I suppose to talk about some of the frankly kind of cool ideas in this we do need to talk spoilers a little bit oh and i'll just drop that i i i enjoy this book i i like it actually quite a bit better than any of the actual buffy or angel comics that i've read Uh uh-huh i would agree with that i read a little bit of the season eight comics and but i read them like issue by issue here and there so i was always like what is going what you did what what and so (laughs) i was very confused so this was more of a complete story, which helped. But this is, she's more fun, and I, I think, I think she's enough of a break from from Buffy in terms of a personality that it, it doesn't feel it. It feels like it has its own identity, and I think the world is well built. Um, and and like you, I thought the I thought the twists were pretty neat. So I suppose, um. We can, and and I and I remember liking the art as well. I say remember because the thing, the, what was supposed to happen was, I lent it to Liz, and then I was supposed to get it back to basically do a quick refresher for myself. Except that you know we haven't seen each other, so she's <laughs> she's now got it in front of the camera just to <laughs> mock me with the fact that she has an idea. So I'm operating very heavily off memory here. Um, but I remember liking the art. I remember liking the dialogue and the. I'm not mocking you. I'm just refreshing your memory. Oh, did uh, you just put the sister in pretty skin tight clothing? Apparently, that's what the law wears in like the 23rd century is like a cat suit. So. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the sister. Yeah, she's kind of important, somewhat not as important as another family member, but. No, and I suppose we we should get to that. Uh, so let's we're going to start talking spoilers from here. I enjoyed it. You seem to mostly enjoy it. Mm-hmm. With notes. <laughs> With notes, at, as is your want. Uh-huh. So um, the first twist, because we we know, we learn early on that her brother died at the hands of a vampire, except we then find out no, actually, he's not dead. He got turned. But that's not, that's like half of your first twist because what throws things off at the beginning and like with her demon mentor is he's like, you have these dreams and you don't know what they mean. She's like, I don't have dreams. What the heck are you talking about? So he's not just her brother. He's her twin. And so what happened was a slayer is supposed to get both you know, the powers, you know, the, the skills and the fighting ability and the strength and everything, but also this sort of sixth sense and, and these dreams and this knowledge. The heritage is what they called it at one point. Like he actually picked up the heritage, but she didn't get that because they were twins. Her brother ended up with that. 
And so when he was attacked and bitten by a vampire, it kind of all hit him and he knew to bite back and drink some of that vampire's blood so that he got turned. And I like that what makes him dangerous is basically that he knows way more about literally everything going on than she does. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he almost got the mental state of the Slayer and she got all the physical ability because he apparently has more leadership skills too and like can sway people or creatures more easily. Yeah, he's he's pretty much bent the local vampires to his will and been like, I'm in charge. I'm running this sucker now. Yeah, so... And that's, that's pretty impressive. I really, really enjoyed that twist, was not anticipating it at all, thought he was long dead and out of the story, and then I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and it was it was really good. I was like, oh, this, this, is, this is a game changer. So I really like that. Um, yeah. And then we have our other twist, which, which accompanies uh, tragedy because the character of Lou, who you mentioned, who you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was annoyed at that she died. Dies. Got killed, rather. She she gets her neck snapped. We don't see that, but the body is, is found. Yeah. And the presumption uh, is that vampires did it while looking for Mel. And what we find out at the end was, I cannot remember his Ukraine. name. Yes, thank you. Her helper, her demon goat helper. Her demon mentor, he killed Lou to motivate her into action. And she yeah, figures her incentive. Yeah. And she figures that out because no vampires ever got invited into the into the apartment where she died. Mm-hmm. So cool. there's a twist, and it also gives a chance to demonstrate how much she has learned and how much she is paying attention. Mm-hmm. And how clever she is because of her ability to figure it out, which I think is what makes it work. Because mm-hmm. if it had been a like he reveals himself and it's like wahaha, I think it would have been very stupid. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he that she figures him out, mm-hmm. that I think is what makes that twist work. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense too because he's he's a demon. He's yeah. not. He's never presented as like the good guy or anything like that. I mean, he's on her side. He's like, let's get rid of these vampires. But there's, you get that he's a shade of gray pretty quickly. You do, but you also, you can't help but like be at a little bit of at ease with him because he does slip into the role of the watcher. Watcher. Yeah. He is occupied, especially if you know Buffy, he is occupying the Giles role. But let's be honest, like Giles was not exactly... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like a white knight either he was this, very much a shade of gray and this is true because that is why giles is the best character so in, in the entire buffyverse so in that way he is kind of still fulfilling the watcher role of being um like a sh- very dark shade of gray you know so that that's that is that's pretty true um and like as you mentioned at the end it goes for kind of a big it basically tries to pull a scaled up version of the hellmouth opening sort of thing and it's okay it just kind of happens and wraps yeah. up kind of on the quick side i think so, i don't i don't know what it is i just feel like 
to a certain degree, action spectacle or prolonged action spectacle doesn't work great in comics. At least it doesn't for me. Like, you can get single panels that are really impactful, like a hit that really hurts, or, you know... Like a, a one-on-one fight can work for a while. Yeah, when you try and go too huge with the spectacle, especially if it's prolonged, if it's not like, boom, you know, mm-hmm. pa- you know, splash page, boom, deal with this, but it, you extend it for a bit, I think that's hard to pull off in the mm-hmm. medium, and I don't think this does. Yeah. And I think he tries to keep a lot of it still, like... Well, I guess when the monster first hits, you've got, like, a spread page. Yeah, you, you've you got that initially, but it... But I'm also, like, we've seen, like, a snake-like monster before on Buffy, so, like, eh, you know? And I, I think part of the other inherent problem with, the, with those sorts of scale-ups is it makes the big climax not the actual fight that... we're invested in because we're invested by that point in the conflict between her and her brother Mm -hmm. and that's still there but the big fight is with a monster i kind of am like it died oh i guess it died like shouldn't have its head exploded more because its head still kind of looks whole when it's which she got its brain supposedly and i'm just like "Eh, yeah the monster fight was not what i wanted really but I did like the twist. Oh, I liked Gunther, too. Her relationship with the, the creature she's working for. <laughs> so, and I thought at first, like, uh, they were... Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's like the, the fish man. The fish man, yes. But yes. not in a, like, shape of water kind of way. Yep. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> It was it was good and it was fun and I needed something that was futuristic and kind of ridiculous a little bit um, during this time because reality is rough. So like a sci-fi like monster fight was about where I was at. <laughs> I think I think the timing worked out well for us then. Yeah, I mean if we had yeah Persepolis was like heavy stuff, I would not have really wanted that right now again. And I have another graphic novel coming, but it's also, like, set in more time. And I'm like, I don't know. I might wait on this one. (laughs) Well, I think we'll wrap it up on that note. I think mostly positive from us. A couple of hiccups. But overall, especially if if you like Buffy as a property and you haven't checked this out, I would recommend this over any of the other Buffy comics that I've ever picked up. She's fun. She's more fun than Buffy. <laughs> De- definitely on the page, yeah. The one other thing I will say is, like, sometimes the body, like, when she's fighting, I'm like, that, that's a weird contortion. Like, where, how does her arm, like, I know she's supposed to be able to, but sometimes I'm like, it just does not look. I'm just, yeah. just going to chalk that one up to, uh, to comic book fight choreography, which is, uh, especially since the 90s, has been very suspect. When it comes to when it comes to the way women bend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we do not bend that way, even if we are slayers. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with listener feedback. From David Gallagher and Steve Ellis, the award-winning team that brought you The Only Living Boy, comes this thrilling new action-adventure series, The Only Living Girl. Hi, my name is Andra. 
People call me Z. I was a normal girl. I loved science, my bear, and my dad. One day, tragedy struck. But that wasn't the end of my story. I awoke in a patchwork world filled with mermaid warriors, insect princesses, robots. A world created by my dad, who had become a mad scientist. Now I'm stuck in a world that doesn't trust me, in a conflict with my father's creations. Luckily, I still have my friend Eric and my bear. I am the only living girl. The Only Living Girl, Volume 1, The Island at the Edge of Infinity, is available now in both hardcover and paperback from Paper Cuts. So we are back, and uh, we're going to do some listener feedback. I'll take the first one from Tim Price. Uh, says, hi, listen, Nathaniel. Thank you for the gallery samples. There's not a lot of biographical stories in my collection except for Mouse, because, of course, you got to have Mouse. Is it bad that I've not actually ever read that? It either it is. It's another one that's in like the seventh, eighth grade classroom, and I know yeah. it's like widely read by high school and some middle. I mean, school. like I, I know what it is. I've just never read it. Same here. Uh, I don't actually <laughs> teach English, so. <laughs> Tim continues, still, this gave me a vibe like that, so I'm more intrigued than I expected. I may give it a try as a digital book sometimes. Well, there's another one for the future reading list. Till next time, my punchers. How long is his reading list at this point? Gotta, <laughs> I don't know. It is all as... about the digital books right now, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of the way to go. You yeah. want to take the next one? Um, the Lizzie and Oswald one? How are yes. the organized? Okay. Um, so here we go. Liz Ann Oswald. Impressive podcast. Most impressive. Uh, so this must have been in the 70s or earlier. Because I remember the Iron Sheik uh, also leaving Iran when the Ayatollah took over. He has been, he had even won a gold medal in Iran and was the bodyguard for the Shah. But quickly left when the guard changed and ended up training the USA team in wrestling. And later becoming the pro wrestling heel. Acting like he hated this country, but in reality came to love his adopted country. So he had to become a transplant from his home country because of, well, what happened. I, I do not know much about Iranian history, so... Well, I mean, I know I know the Iron Sheik as a name because, like, I was never that much into wrestling, but I was, like, aware enough, like, during the Hulk Hogan era to sort of have known a little bit of what had happened prior to that. And the Iron Sheik was, was a, she, as she called it a heel. That's the term for kind of a villainous. I know that from glow. There you go. (laughs) That is my knowledge of wrestling is the Netflix series glow. (laughs) There you go. The, the Iron Sheik was a heel. Um, (laughs) but as was, as was often the case, they, the personalities they had on, you know, in the ring in front of the camera wasn't always true to life and they had kayfabe and, and all that stuff to maintain the illusion. But yeah, no, I hadn't, I hadn't thought to make that connection. That's an interesting one to make. Um, I'm going to continue as for this. Well, I bought the DVD of this for my brother. 
Thought he'd share it and we'd watch it. The style reminded me of the anime style, so thought he might like it and I'd give it a shot. But he just kind of tossed the DVD to the side. Wasn't his thing. And I haven't seen the DVD anywhere since. I think I heard about the comic through Wizard Magazine when that was a thing. Or maybe, or it may have been uh, CBR. I don't remember. Been years. Got too much on my to-read pile to look through for now. Wait, someone not living up to their political belief? Lol. It's so sweet you all are surprised by that. Such Ozzy and Harriet like holiness y'all have there. Hey. <laughs> Look, we're not naive, but we can still try and hold to the the to the concept of how maybe it would be better if. Yes, perhaps. Um, still sounds like an interesting biocomic, which it definitely was. I guess it is more of an any style of art than anime. But at the time, that came to mind. And it was interesting seeing them go through things. Some messed up things, but it happened there at that time. Her father having no beer kind of shows him oddly taking a chance. Though it's not mentioned. That's a good point. Though her mother protesting the scarf does, does show some of the stuff they had to go through before escaping. Anyway, can't wait to hear the next podcast. Thank you, Lizanne. And finally, uh, we had Ido Bosnar. It seems like you both have a pretty reserved impression of Persepolis, which is too bad. Personally, I quite liked it. I found it quite good as both a personal autobiographical story and also as a historical snapshot into what it was like for a girl growing up in post-revolutionary Iran. Generally, I like more lush and detailed art, but I found that Satrapi's pared-down, almost childish style really worked for this story. That said, I agree that it's not something for children or adolescents. In fact, I was surprised when Liz said she found uh, said she found the book in an eighth grade classroom. I wouldn't recommend this for readers younger than sixteen. The story is meant for adult readers, which, if it isn't apparent from the book you reviewed, is very apparent in the second part. By the way, I'd recommend two of Satrapi's other books available in English: uh, Embryo. Embroidery. Thank you. Embroideries Mm -hmm. and Chicken with Plums, which tells smaller stories. The former basically involves an afternoon clatch of Satrapi's female relatives, mother, grandmother, aunt, etc., in which they talk about their lives, love, sex, etc. The latter is an examination of the last few days in the life of Satrapi's great uncle, set in Tehran in the late 1950s. Oh. I guess so. Sounds like she's stuck with uh, with the autobiographical or family related um, bent got, for the most part. But yeah, she's got a lot to work with. I mean, her yeah, I, pretty fascinating. So. Yeah, I I would agree. So I think that'll wrap it up for this one. We don't know what we're doing next because we'll we need it out. <laughs> we, yeah, we need to we need to figure it out. Like we were able to do this month okay because it was a book I'd already read and you had it. So Well, you gave it to me before everything went down. So yeah. yeah so like you had a copy to read and I don't and I'd already read it. I I don't know what we're going to do we'll next. Figure it out. We'll figure something out. But thanks everybody for tuning in and uh we'll see you next time. Bye. Yeah. Tough Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production and is presented on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Comments can be left on fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can support the network by finding us on Patreon. 
This particular show was supported by Carolyn and Brian Linton. Our logo art was created by Nick Buxom, and our theme music is by Erica Dreisbach, whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com. Bye.